it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me. I would love to hear from you. My email is SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. I want to thank you guys for all your support. Um, people have donated through PayPal. You can donate through PayPal at Saturdays with Joy Keys. And if you've missed the show, you can check them out on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, uh, as well as here uh, at Blog Talk Radio, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, and, and many other places where you get your podcasts. So don't fear if you miss something, you can still go back. Do a search for my name and the guests, and it'll probably pop up under Google. Well, this morning, I have a, a noted historian, a professor. Um, his interest in community formation led to a career in community development with positions that included program director at local initiatives, support corporation, director of real estate development with the Abyssinian Development Corporation in Harlem, and executive director of gay men of African descent in New York City. Now, as an academic, his research interests include African-American institutions, urban history, and LGBTQ history. He has a BA in economics from Harvard, Harvard, I should say it like that maybe, and the MBA in real estate finance from Columbia, and a PhD in U.S. history from the Graduate Center of City University of New York City. So this morning, we're going to be talking about his book, which deals with this guy, he's called the father of black Harlem, and um, he has a real estate agency. But this uh, Dr. Um, Magruder, I'm going to say it like that, is going to talk to us further about it. Good morning, Kevin, Dr. Magruder. <laughs> good morning, Kevin. It's fine. Good morning, George. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, Kevin is fine. Okay, I don't want to, because you know, look, it takes a lot of work to get a PhD. So you know, we want to we want to respect that uh, that 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 those letters. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but 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 Kevin is great. Uh, I'm Joy. Uh, I'm I, I don't have a PhD yet. Yes, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> it's on the list. It's on the bucket list. Um, uh, but I'm talking about you this morning. So let's talk about why you got into this. What was your interest for history? Because you did get an economics degree. Then you were in real estate. How did this? How did this winding road start? Uh, what was the catalyst? I, I moved to New York in 1982 to attend Columbia Business School. And the first week I was in New York, I went to a lecture at Hunter College about uh, the LGBTQ community and the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, it was given by a man named Eric Garber, who was interviewing some of the last Harlem Renaissance folks 
who were around. And that led to an interest in Harlem, interest in the Harlem Renaissance. And that's really how I got connected with the Abyssinia Baptist Church. I became a member there. And uh, even before then, I was a volunteer helping to form the Abyssinia Development Corporation, part of a group of, of volunteers. And so understanding the history of a neighborhood is really important if you're doing community development, that you're trying to revive a neighborhood, but you need to understand what happened before. And as I learned more mm -hmm. about that, Philip Payton's name continued to come up as one of the key figures in really facilitating black people moving to Harlem in, in large numbers. And so this book wouldn't exist if I hadn't um, been in Harlem during those periods. And also if I didn't have a real estate background because I appreciated the things he was doing and understood how difficult they were. You know, it's funny because um, this week I was on uh, social media and I saw something in London. Now, I know you're like, why is she bringing up London? But it was uh, this guy on there talking about affordable housing. You know, everywhere around the globe, people need affordable housing. And even today, people need affordable housing. Um, it, it has not stopped, um, you know, in, in the patent time that you think, okay, well, that was so long ago. Well, shouldn't that not be an issue? But it's not. So in London, they're dealing with this issue with a black guy, and he's showing that um, in, order, in order for, I think, this corporation to build a building, they had to have a certain amount of affordable housing. But guess what? The affordable housing had two different entrances. One was for the regular, I guess, rich people, and then he showed another entrance that was for the affordable housing people. Uh, um, and I was like, what? Something like that had been proposed in New York at one point, too. I think it got shot down. And that was in the last, probably in the last 10 years. Um, and it, it, it just really centers on the, you know, the challenges of uh, safe, affordable, clean, housing um, was a challenge in the early 1900s, and it's a challenge really worldwide today. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about the book and uh, Patton? Um... Sure. Uh, Philip Anthony Payton, Jr. was born in 1876 in Westfield, Massachusetts. His parents were entrepreneurs. His father was a barber. His mother was a hairdresser. They had side-by-side -side businesses in Westfield. Um, he was probably considered the underachiever of his family initially. Uh, he dropped out of high school, was working in the barber shops with his father, and his parents really wanted more for him. And in 1899, right when his younger brother was about to enter Yale, he moved to New York to seek his fortune. And he struggled initially um, with finding porter jobs. Then eventually got a job working in the office of a man who was developing the Upper West Side. And this is in about 1901. And that's when he got the idea to go into the real estate business. At that time, the black community in New York was centered in what was called the Tenderloin District, which was in Manhattan, roughly from about 23rd Street to uh, maybe about uh, 54th Street, and he had an office there, struggled initially, and then in about 1902, his fortune shifted, and he got 
some leases uh, or management contracts to manage buildings. He had framed himself as a specialist in colored apartments. And what was happening in the real estate industry in many parts of the United States at that point, as black people moved to cities after the Civil War, uh, a form, a hardening form of housing discrimination was happening. And so they would be kind of seared wait to a certain second. neighborhoods. Oh, wait a second, Kevin. Kevin, you said mm-hmm. there was housing discrimination? I'm being facetious. Um, uh, at that time, I mean, you know, of course, of course there was, but let's go back to where, um, Peyton grew up though. He grew up in Westfield, Massachusetts in a mostly white, I think they were like, what, 5% black people. Is that, is that the estimate in the book kind of well, thing? Um, yeah, probably, probably about that. It was a handful of black families and his family would have been probably at the top of the economic ladder. His, his parents. Uh, they owned their building on the main street, one of the main streets in Westfield. And so he had a, a relatively privileged background, but, you know, they didn't have a lot of wealth. So when he came to New York, he was really pretty much on his own. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the things that happened to them, uh, you, you, happened to him is that he did have an accident. You mentioned that in the book and um, that might mm-hmm. be part of the reason he, he dropped out of, um, and, yeah. and didn't go it's further. Early days um, of football, and he had a football mm-hmm. injury and broke his wrist. And it was a severe break. He had planned to go back to school, but did not. Yeah. So, so he did have a reason for for just not going because both his brothers um, did they both go to Yale? I know one went to Yale. They both, did they both go to Yale. Both. Yeah. Both of his brothers went to Yale, and it seemed like there was a connection between. Westfield, some Westfield young men and alumni in Yale. And even the person Peyton was working for, that Upper West Side developer, was a Yale graduate. Or he had attended mm-hmm. Yale. He hadn't graduated either. And so I, I kind of suspect that somebody from Westfield might have facilitated him getting that job. Yeah, definitely. And, I think that's and, something that people have to realize. And in life in general, connections are important. And having those connections, yeah. um, for example, from Yale. But if you never went to Yale, you wouldn't have that connection. So you probably wouldn't have gotten. Maybe we're going to make this assumption that he wouldn't have gotten that job. And that's still true today. Um, so that's why it's important that doors are opened at, at a variety of places for people, so they can make those connections. I even remember telling mm-hmm. my daughter and my brother that. I said part of going to college is not necessarily going to get this piece of paper. It's the connections that you make. And a lot of people Mm -hmm. come out and start businesses with the people they went to school with. Um, And uh, so, so that's, that's one of the important things of going to, to school, but also having those social connections. So he came to New York, the unique thing, the name of his company Talk to the audience about his name for his company. That was very unique for the time. Sure. As his fortune, his fortunes changed pretty quickly. Um, by 1903, he buys a, a townhouse on 131st Street between Lenox and Fifth Avenue and forms a company in that year called the Afro-American Realty Company. So the word Afro-American was being used at that time. It wasn't and most black people at that time were really calling themselves colored. But there were 
a group of people like W.E.B. Du Bois and others who were using the word Afro-American. So the fact that he named that company that um, suggests something about his intent. In the terms of that day, he would have been considered a race man, and that's somebody who positioned their work as being to the benefit of black people. It was a partnership. He had about 10 older black entrepreneurs as his partners. And so it starts as a partnership. They're leasing, they're managing buildings, some that are owned by white people. They're managing these buildings where black people live. The practice at that time was that white owners charge black people more for rent because black people had limited choices in New York and other cities often, they would charge more than white people would be for rent. And the heart, the racial segregation in buildings is not firm at that time, but it's growing. So there are buildings where white and black people live together. There are streets where they live together. But during this period, discrimination is growing. And so in some ways, by positioning himself as a specialist in colored apartments, Peyton kind of leans into that discriminatory practice to his benefit. In 1904, there was a small black community in Harlem on 135th, 134th, and 133rd Street between Lenox and Fifth Avenue, where Lenox Terrace is now. And in that year, the subway at 135th and Lenox Avenue was scheduled to open in the fall. In the spring, Hudson Realty Group, which was a larger black, uh, larger white company, purchased a fair amount of the properties in that area where basically where mm-hmm. Harlem Hospital is now on the north side of 135th Street. And then they also purchased properties in where black people live and they began they served eviction notices on some of those people. Peyton Talk and to them other, about move day. Can you talk to them about move day? Yeah, Tell the audience the, what that means. Sure. Um, April 1st uh, in New York City was traditionally the day when residential leases all came up. And so, or May, March 30th. And so April 1st was called moving day. Often because uh, property owners to attract new residents would often give a, a month's free rent uh, for, uh, for new leases. And so people often, particularly lower-income people, would move every couple of years to take advantage of that. And so moving day was a day when you'd see the streets filled with people moving to different places, and that's when these eviction notices were served. And I haven't been able to determine exactly whether people were actually evicted. They may have been, but Peyton and other uh, real estate colleagues were able to purchase and lease buildings in that area, kind of like a chess game. So they blocked what Hudson Realty was trying to do, which was to acquire all of that property and probably redevelop it for what they would call a higher and better use now that the subway was going in. And so they weren't able to do that. Peyton has a victory. He, by this time, he's in Booker T. Washington's inner circle. And that's because of relationships, um, some related to his family, some related to, to Westfield. And 
from there for the next almost 15 years, he is a major figure in marketing Harlem for black people. That summer of 1904, he incorporates the Afro-American Realty Company and begins selling stock. And that is really what brings him to the, the eye of New Yorkers and, and nationally in terms of the black community, that incorporation also, because he announces. Now, go ahead. It also brings him um, enemies and enemies from within. And you talk about in the book that he was sued by uh, some of his partners because they said he was um, not on the up and up uh, with, with his dealings and, and with the returns that he was supposedly giving people. Yeah, in the prospectus with his incorporation, he was promising returns of 10% a year. That's at a time when the standard return for real estate was 6%. And so that is, you know, you kind of, from a business point of view, you wonder how is he going to do that if everybody else is doing this. Um, 1907, a group of his shareholders sue him, saying that he hasn't issued a dividend. And so typically the way corporations work is they issue dividends when the, the numbers suggest they should do it, but they're not required to do it. But his promotional efforts had given people the impression that they were going to be receiving dividends frequently and they hadn't. And so it was a handful of shareholders who sued him. And the, the really puzzling thing is that they were led by Wilfred Smith, who had been the attorney who had written the prospectus. And the reason I say that is because one of the claims in the lawsuit was that the prospectus was fraudulent. And they said mm. that the property, several of the properties that he said were owned free and clear had mortgages on them. And the suit winds his way through the courts for a couple of years. It was a civil suit, but he was arrested at one point, which doesn't happen for civil suit. And so when you mention enemies within, you know, there, there are definitely people working against him. And I haven't totally figured out what was behind that because it's just puzzling. It does stall his movement forward. He was doing very well um, up until that lawsuit. And for a company that really depended on... Things, he does some tricky things in the background you talk about in the book where mm-hmm. he um, is getting, it seems like other people maybe to purchase things, uh, purchase uh, real estate, and also um, his wife at one point, which was very unusual, was purchasing real estate um, for a woman to well, be doing that, a black woman to be doing that. Um but so, while he was um, going through this suit, he, he looked like he was hiding something you kind of hinted at, maybe? Um, he, I would say from a legal point of view, he was being prudent. Um, he bought that house. <laughs> and, okay. And, and in, when the lawsuit happened, he transfers the house to his wife's name. Actually, it was a, a, a company. Uh, it was in the company's name. And part of the reason for the arrest was they were claiming he was going to leave town. He didn't leave town. But I think Mm -hmm. she was thinking, if I lose this suit, I don't want to lose my house. And so the house was put in a company's name. He did. It was a mixed verdict with the suit. He wasn't found guilty personally. 
but the company was fined, and so he did have to pay a fine. He didn't lose the house. Um, and his wife was, um, Margaret, um, was listed on some property. There were women who were active in real estate at that time. Julia Ligon is a woman whose name comes up in transactions that he worked with, and I haven't been able to find out a lot more about him. So it's not so unusual that a woman would be involved with real estate transactions. And so I would say what he was doing was really trying to manage his risk. It wasn't, it wasn't anything fraudulent related to that, but okay. the court did, did find that he should not have said that those buildings in the prospectus were free and clear when they had mortgages. And that's yeah, why he was fine. And he had, he had to, he had to buy out the shareholders that, um, were part of the student wasn't all of the shareholders. It was a handful, and I'm not sure of why they made that distinction. So why do they get their money back, but everybody doesn't? But but really, what now there was something. Is, Go ahead. Say, say. He, he comes out of the suit with his reputation tarnished, and he continues to move forward, but never at the same level that he was uh, at before the suit. And, yeah. Now, one another great things he did is he went to Liberia um, yeah. uh, with uh, several. And but unfortunately, you were saying there wasn't much of a description about what he was doing or while he was there. Um, yeah, he went to Liberia in ni- early 1910, and he was so he was part of Booker T. Washington's inner circle. Uh, Emmett Scott, who was Booker T. Washington, who was the secretary at Tuskegee Institute and was Booker T. Washington's right-hand man, was good personal friends with uh, Philip Payton. And about the year before, Emmett Scott had been part of a U.S. government uh, committee of three people who were sent to Liberia to review their finances. This is at a time when the U.S., France, and England are intervening with Liberia regularly. And and so I think it's the relationship between Emmett Scott that opens the door for Peyton to go a year later. Uh, he doesn't go with Scott. He travels there with uh, an AME Zion uh, bishop and an, an AME bishop who were going there as well. He spends about three months there, and the only thing I've been able to find is information when he arrived and when he left. But it seemed there was a going away party for him at his home. And at the party, they talk about him going there to explore business interests. So for black people, Liberia, really from its founding for black Americans, was um, in some parts a refuge, in other parts a place of opportunity. You know, and as we learned in the 1980s when they had the, the coup, American Liberians become an elite class there and Peyton mm-hmm. is going there in 1910 that's at the beginning of that I didn't find any evidence that he followed up and actually went into business but that's, that was his impetus another attraction for Liberians is they were very and they were very appreciative and admiring of Tuskegee Institute and its educational um, model and so Peyton did not go to Tuskegee, but he was close with Booker T. Washington, and so they might have he might have been going there 
to help with that too. I just haven't been able to document that though. But he was definitely looking for business opportunities, although it doesn't can't find any evidence that he followed up on anything. So now you wrote a book before about real estate, race and real estate conflict and co- co- uh, cooperation in Harlem, 1890 to 1920. And now you have Philip Payton. What's next for uh, Kevin McGruder? I'm uh, beginning work on a biography of Dr. Rudolph Fisher, who was a Harlem Renaissance writer. He was graduate of Howard Medical School. Brown University, class of 1919, honors graduate, um, moved to Harlem in about 1925, published about uh, 12 to 15 short stories. His first story is in Atlantic Monthly Magazine, published two novels, uh, The Walls of Jericho and The Conjure Man Dies, which was one of the earliest mystery stories by a black writer. And I interviewed his widow, Jane Ryder Fisher, in the early 1990s and just reconnected with his granddaughter. So I'm at the beginning stages of, of beginning that work. There's a fair amount that's been written about his literature, but not a lot about him and his family and his fascinating family and just his own trajectory. He died in 1934, was born in 1897, so he was a young man when he died and he's not as well known, even though he was part of that inner circle of Langston Hughes or Neil Hurston of the Harlem Renaissance. So I want to really uh, provide information and fill that, that gap in um, knowledge of the Harlem Renaissance and Harlem as well, because he lived in Harlem uh, for several years in the 1920s. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book. Uh, so I want to encourage people to follow me on social media. Where can they find you if they want to check you out or talk to you or they might have some information, historical information? Where are you on social media? Uh, on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and on uh, on Twitter. And, uh, so any of those platforms. And I will send you – I have book plates for people who buy the book. And if there's been so few face-to-face um, meetings. So I find the book plate. So I'll send you some of those so you can get, you can put those in the book uh, for people who buy it. Oh, okay. And also for, for people who buy it online, if they email me at kmagruder at antiochcollege.edu, I'll send you a signed book plate that goes in. And it's a mock-up of Philip Payton's Afro-American Realty Company, uh, his uh, company stationery. Wow. Yeah, that's a really um, interesting story. We don't have time to give that away, but that is a really beautiful story in there. And the book does have other um, pictures and things, so it's not all words. <laughs> Some people be like, oh, my God, history is so boring, blah, 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 blah. No, 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 no. Um, so um, there's a lot of great uh, uh, other stories in there and photos, which I, for me I find really interesting. And just the fact that he did bring himself up by his bootstraps, um, again, thank you so much, Kevin, um, Dr. McGruder, <laughs> for coming on today. I appreciate it. <laughs> you have a great weekend, okay? You too. Take care. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with author Kevin McGruder. He's also a professor. He specializes in history and real estate. And we just finished talking about his book, Dealing with Philip Payton, um, the father of Black Harlem, and I'm going to give away some copies. So follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Stay tuned. I'm going to be speaking with actress and director Nana Mensa 
um, about her film. And um, so just hold on a second, and I'll be right back. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.